0: Welcome to Immigration 360. On today's episode, we will discuss the impact of U.S. foreign policy on Latin America and the role it's played on present day immigration in the United States. With me to discuss this today, I have Gail Emmerich, a very special guest. Gail Emmerich is the Executive Director of the Southeast Arizona Area Health Education Center, or SEHEC a health workforce development agency serving rural, tribal, and border communities and health service agencies in southern Arizona and the US-Mexico border region. She also serves as adjunct faculty of the University of Arizona College of Public Health and is a member of the US-Mexico Binational Health Council and is a governing board member of the National AHEC organization. Firmly believing that health and community well-being are linked to the large issues of social and economic well-being, Gill pursued studies which combine social and economic development issues with health. At Columbia University in the city of New York, she earned her joint master's degree in public health, with a focus in population and family health, and international affairs, with a focus on economic and political development. Ms. Emmerich has dedicated her professional life to promote the well-being of individuals, families and communities in Central America and in the U.S. border regions. With 30 years of experience in program management, Gail has demonstrated her capacity in challenging roles such as Executive Director, Principal Investigator, Regional Technical Advisor, and Senior Program Officer for international and local nonprofit organizations including Project Concern International, the United Nations World Food Program, as well as U.S.-based academic institutions including the University of Arizona. Hi, Gail. It's great to have you here. Thank you. It's great to be here, Victoria. Great. So why don't we start with what has U.S. foreign policy looked like in Latin America and what role has it played in Latin America?
1: Thank you for that question. Uh, The question is probably one of the most important to ask and to know the answers to, as it's the only way that Americans can understand truly the root causes of current migration from Latin America and it's probably the aspect that is most neglected in our current dialogue on migration, and the aspect that is least understood, both by the American public and our policymakers. Since its formal separation from the English and the establishment as the hegemonic power of the Western Hemisphere in 1823 under President Monroe and the Monroe Doctrine, the United States has viewed itself and played the role as the leader of the Western Hemisphere. By establishing itself as the economic and military power of the Hemisphere early on in the 1830s and 40s, by the time global commerce and trade routes were established, the United States was pretty much able to make the rules. The Monroe Doctrine formally proclaimed that what happens in this Hemisphere was not Europe's business but the business of the United States. And what happened in Europe was not going to be the business of the United States. At that time, England and France were tired from raging wars in the western hemisphere and finally rescinded power over North America, and the US had much to gain by playing the role of the ruler. Spain at this time was dealing with independence of all of its former colonies in South and Central America and so could not or did not pay attention, militarily or economically, to the United States and an increasing role in the hemisphere. So this set the tone for what would follow. What followed was U.S. military intervention and economic expansion throughout Latin America. This type of aggression was precipitated with the War for Independence in Texas. Remember the Alamo? and the U.S. invasion of Mexico City that followed in 1847. While if one has visited the Alamo and read the history while there, you will see that the U.S. was not the law-abiding country that the history books have painted us as. So, once the U.S. established rule over Texas, our expansion continued throughout the West with all of the formerly Mexican territories, including New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, Colorado, etc. Later, from the 1890s up to about the beginning of World War II, the U.S. backed military dictators throughout Latin America in order to maintain U.S. interests economically through our agricultural interests and industry, including coffee, sugar, and bananas. Hence the term Banana Republic was born, where literally decisions were being made to maintain economic dominance of the one-crop system for exporting goods and exploiting local labor. Local leaders, primarily dictators in these countries, obeyed these rules set up by the U.S. as they had interests in doing so as well. They would remain in power, and they and their friends remained profiting from such relationships. Curiously, the U.S. invaded Latin America over 80 times. A link to this chart is in the podcast description, but I do provide a few examples here to make the point to our listeners. So, the US invaded Chile in 1891, and a little later we invaded Panama, which actually belonged to Colombia, but the United States needed it in order to construct the canal. So, an insurrection took place, and US military presence would remain off and on for more than a decade. As well, in the early 1900s, the US reestablished military presence in Nicaragua. We had a former senator from Tennessee, William Walker, declared himself president in the 1800s, but he lasted only six months. So this military presence was established on the Caribbean coast where sugarcane was beginning to make a lot of money. The list goes on and on. The U.S. backed a long dictatorship of the Samosa family from the 1930s until the Sandinista Revolution in 1979. U.S. troops were in Cuba off and on from 1912, To 1933, with the establishment of the Batista dictatorship, would last until the Cuban Revolution of the 50s. U.S. interests there were for sugar, rum, and other industry, as well as political stability, which was guaranteed through our support of oppressive military regimes. This similar pattern occurred in Central America as well. So you can see that history does indeed repeat itself, and by doing so, reinforces the pattern of economic intervention exploitation, need for military intervention for stability to keep laboring classes from rising up, and the pattern continues.
0: Wow, thank you for that really in-depth overview. I think as you mentioned in the beginning, it's something that a lot of people aren't aware of, so it's really important to talk about. So now let's discuss a few case studies of countries where you have lived, worked, and have personal ties to, and how U.S. foreign policy and intervention have set the stage for what we're seeing today, present day, with immigration.
1: I'm going to talk a little bit about Guatemala and El Salvador, two countries that the U.S. currently and historically has received many migrants from, and two countries which I know a lot about, both from my work there as a health professional and personally as a mother of three Central American children. So, during the 50s, 60s, and 70s, the United States and the Soviet Union were fighting a power play, which we know as the Cold War. When Ronald Reagan was elected, he proclaimed a war on communism. That war was not fought directly with Russia or the Soviet Union. That would have been too scary. It instead was a cowardly, covert war, with the U.S. intervening in Guatemala and El Salvador, and the USSR proclaiming Cuba, Nicaragua, and later Venezuela on their side. So picture two bullies getting their weaker friends to do the fighting. That is exactly what happened in the region. Guatemala and Salvadoran elites took the side of the United States because that was their lifeline economically and militarily for stability. The U.S. established a School of the Americas in Alabama to train Latin American military in torture and the CIA both infiltrated and supported Central American military at all levels. When I worked in Guatemala, it was known that public phones were bugged and listened in on. Most people did not or could not afford landlines, and that was way before cell phones. Both in Guatemala and El Salvador, there were well-supported local movements of guerrilla and others who were fighting for civil rights, rights to land, decent wages, and improved education. But the military targeted these local leaders, and hundreds of thousands of people who worked to improve lives of the average citizens were tortured, kidnapped, or killed. During the 80s, thousands of Salvadorans, and some Guatemalans as well, fled the region and came to the U.S. seeking asylum. Migration routes were established, and so family members actually established residency and later citizenship in our country. Large numbers of Salvadorans came to Los Angeles, New York, and elsewhere. Unlike portrayals in the media, the majority of people migrating here worked hard, established businesses, and learned English. Later, during the 90s, immigration sweeps deported those without legal documents, and gangs, including MS-13, were deported from the U.S. and imported into Central America. In the 90s as well, the Central American Peace Accords were signed, but those accords have been a complete failure. While formal military action has ceased, paramilitary and gang violence has increased for several reasons. These include complete PTSD of the populace. For example, after a 30-year war in El Salvador, everybody knew someone who was tortured, kidnapped, or killed. And guns and weapons as well were never turned back into authorities. So the level of violence in both countries, El Salvador and Guatemala, is frightening and El Salvador holds the distinction as murder capital of the world. This was to be our supposed shining example of democracy after the Cold War with Russia. But at the same time, the U.S. population increased in consumption of illegal drugs, helping fuel the narco industry in Latin America and the creation now of business of smuggling and human trafficking. So to someone who does have knowledge of the U.S. history in the region and does have family who have witnessed the impact of U.S. intervention in Central America politics and economy, it is very apparent that the United States has a direct role in and a shared responsibility for the current migration patterns that we are now living.
0: Yeah, so it sounds like there's a lot of, almost kind of like a domino effect in relation to Latin America and the U.S., as you explained So kind of going off of that, given everything you explained of El Salvador and Guatemala, does U.S. foreign policy present day aim at addressing root causes?
1: Very good question. I'm going to kind of break that into two parts because there's our issue of our foreign policy and how those are developed, and then there's specifically addressing root causes, right? Right. So first, I don't believe that the U.S. has a clear long-term foreign policy strategy for, for the region and, and for many regions. Um, one challenge is that in general, America and Americans suffer from historical amnesia mm-hmm. and don't know history for a lot of the areas of the world that our policies are being developed so um I don't think that we have foreign policy strategies that are developed for the long term and I don't think the policies are strategic. So for example, not for the hemisphere, not in Central America, not in, in Mexico. We narrowly insist that our foreign policy is usually based on a sense of US interest and that we proclaim that that interest is uh for promoting democracy. Um but as my previous um, discussion was elaborating, the United States has intervened many, many times, including 81 times in um, Latin America in foreign elections and foreign governments. So our policies don't always promote democracy. And so one who has studied U.S. foreign policy and economic development is left with a, a question about what our foreign policy strategies are, but also what our U.S. interest is. So when we talk about U.S. interests, are we measuring that purely economically? And a lot of times by looking at short-term economic interests and being selfish, it actually comes back to um, bite us in the foot. So we're left with not having a clear or strategic policy strategy at all as it relates to Central America. But if we viewed Central America's uh, economies would develop with a focus on equity, that its population would receive quality education, and that people could walk on its streets safely, that actually would be in the best interest of the U.S. Uh, but we would have to practice those beliefs, policies, and strategies here at home first. In a superficial sense, the current proposed plan, uh, but I have not seen or heard about the details of that plan, and as they say, the devil is in the details. The current proposed plan to address root causes does acknowledge the need for economic investment, um, so that's good, uh, including there's recent discussion of an international minimum wage, and I believe that would go a long way in equalizing the playing field for workers um, worldwide. But the plan falls short in including small business and um, including indigenous communities, which are the majority of people migrating from Guatemala in particular. Um, So until the racism and isolation they face in their own country is addressed and um, indigenous communities are absorbed into the economy and included in the policies and strategies, I think the Guatemalan migration situation will continue. Um, And the plan also falls short in addressing violence and gangs um, and the U.S. role and potential role for supporting local governments and communities in addressing those issues. So we still have a lot of work to do.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it. I'm also hearing kind of points of disconnect. So the first major one is that there just doesn't seem to be an alignment between what foreign policy looks like and what's happening like, on the ground. Like For example, in El Salvador and Guatemala, like, it's, not, it's not in the best interest of people who like, live there. And then the other major disconnect is, as you said, that we don't really practice what we preach almost. It's like we want other regions of the world, other countries to do certain things. But then domestically, it's like we're not following that. So it's where's the where's the connection there? So going off of that, what would an appropriate response from the U.S. government look like? Um, Well,
1: you're pretty correct in that there's a there's definitely a disconnect in what we're um, aspiring to and hoping for in terms of these um, policies in other countries and what we're practicing at home. Um, In order for us to address migration from from Central America in particular, we have to be committed to long term strategies and a challenge in the US. You know, we have a four year, a four term election cycle and a funding cycle. So um, we need commitment for longer than four years. Um, as my previous parts of this talk have addressed, the United States has been in Latin America and Central America for decades, actually century, uh, more than a century, and yet we're expecting short-term uh, strategies and answers to work, and these, um, these situations require long-term commitment and long-term strategies we need to develop social and economic policies that strengthen self-governance and work with local governments to re-establish rule of law. That would be the number one, and that's very, very challenging. Something um, difficult if we're not practicing that here at home, I'm thinking of um, what we witnessed during the invasion of the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. So how can we expect others to establish rule of law if we're trying to destroy it here at home? Mm-hmm. We need to be committed to investing more resources for development than we did during years of warfare. The United States is an extremely wealthy country. We are the most wealthy country in the world. Um, It's how we choose to spend our money that's problematic. During El Salvador's war, the United States provided millions of dollars a day for fighting. Why is it that we won't commit more resources for keeping people happy, nourished, and safe so that they can stay at home? If that is our foreign policy goal, we need to back it up with actions and adequate resources.
0: So it sounds like an appropriate response from the U.S. government would be rooted in sustainability, something that last, that's long-lasting, like you said. So before we conclude the interview today, we, I just want to go over everything we discussed. So we discussed, in general, big context, U.S. foreign policy, the historical trend of it, what it's looked like over years. Um, and then we specifically talked about case studies, including the case study of El Salvador and Guatemala, and how what has occurred in those two places has contributed to present-day migration. And we also covered how the U.S. is currently responding to immigration and how it doesn't seem to align with what is happening, with the realities of of the places, of countries. So in addition to that, is there anything you would like to add? Uh,
1: Yeah, sure. I would say, although some of my comments and observations in general have been quite negative as they reflect U.S. policy and attitudes towards other nations, Mm -hmm. my feeling about the future and our role as Americans in it is a positive one. Why? Well, first, uh, because I surround myself with with young people who are out there doing things in the world to make it a better place. That's really important. Two, because there is a growing movement of both young and old who do not believe in this two-party system anymore. Our world has so many perspectives, and there is no way that our current two-party entrenchment can possibly begin to adequately address the problems our world is facing. And as our talk and understanding of diversity and inclusion grows, our understanding that we need a better way to represent our diverse ways of thinking and our diverse values is going to grow as well. Mm -hmm. I truly believe that only by expanding our hearts and our minds, we can contribute to and enjoy our beautifully diverse world.
0: I love that response. Thank you for sharing. Oh, you are welcome. So that actually segues perfectly into an action item. So what action item can the audience take to become more involved? Oh, I would
1: encourage Americans. Um, I know we're a, a large and diverse body of people, so it's really hard to um, generalize. But, mm-hmm. but okay, I'm talking in general here. Um, we need to read more about our own history as it relates to other countries and other people. Yeah. Um, in school, we're narrowly taught... Um, very narrowly about certain segments of our own society and certain segments of the of the history. So, I would encourage us to engage more with people from different cultures and countries and try to understand other points of view, even when we don't agree with them. Uh, politics is not just posting an opinion on Facebook or responding to a tweet, but politics require that we think deeply but more importantly, that we care deeply and that our actions really represent our true politics. And I'm gonna share with you a couple of my favorite books are uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman. It is a true story of a Peace Corps volunteer who was actually recruited into the CIA and his subsequent political predicaments. It's a very fascinating, easy read. And then uh, Bitter Fruit, a less easy read, but that tells the story of the US involvement in the overthrow of a democratically elected president in Guatemala. Finally, I would say that if you do read and then you still end up feeling guilty about U.S. politics in other countries, uh, do something about that feeling. Write your senator, volunteer on a campaign that you care about, and go work at a local shelter. There is too much work to be done than to just sit in front of your computer. So go out into the world and live in it.
0: Thank you. Wonderful. I really like that call to action for the audience. So that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you so much, Gail, for your time and for your thoughtful answers. I really appreciate it, and I'm sure the audience really appreciates it as well. So thank you, and thanks to the audience for sticking around. We'll catch you next time.